It's Sunday, and have we got a story for you. Welcome to Stories Unlimited with your host, Dave Casey, coming to you from the North Shore of Chicago. And I'm Taylor Mason, and I'm coming to you from the Jersey Shore. Thanks for stopping in, and have we got a story for you. Taylor, you heard something very interesting this week, and I wanted you to share it with our audience. Pull up a seat, because this one is a doozy. So I'm going to go back to two years before I met you, Dave. And I was living in, uh, I graduated from the University of Illinois, and I got a job at a piano bar on Rush Street in Chicago called Arnie Morton's, which is, Arnie Morton is a Chicago, a kind of a legend, a real life person who had a steak joint, he, Morton's steak joint, and there's, he has them around many cities, but Arnie's and Arnie Morton's in Chicago was a big deal. And here's the whole deal. My, my uncle, I was living with him, was a very successful accountant in Chicago, Gene Baroni, and he got me a job with one of his clients, the Marchetti brothers, who ran the Como Inn on the near north side of Chicago, which was a very, very popular Italian restaurant and a catering service. So, Any relation? Do you know Marchetti, the great defensive lineman for the Baltimore Colts? You know, and if I had a brain, Dave, I would have asked Joe Marchetti and his brother Stefan. But I can, I can guarantee you that Stefan would not know, even if Gino Marchetti was his cousin or some relation, <laughs> Stefan would not know anything about the NFL circa 1958. I got a quick story about Gino Marchetti, and it has oh. to do with restaurants. He opened up a hamburger stand in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. <laughs> Gino's, and it was like a McDonald's. It was like you couldn't have copied McDonald's any more than he did. But McDonald's was just fledgling at the time. This was the early, early 60s. So he opens up Gino's Marchetti's Hamburgers, 15 cents. Opening night, I think the burgers were free. (laughs) He opens up a sleepy little suburb of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which hadn't yet reached its, uh, you know, peak. It was still Delaware Township, I believe, at that time. There is a absolute riot. Kids are throwing bicycles through the windows. It became like Detroit with Martin Luther King's assassination over free hamburgers in a white bread suburb. It was the craziest night my brother had ever witnessed for, you know, until he got to be older and went to Woodstock. It was just wild. But go ahead. Now, he was a defensive end, right? World champion Colts during the Unitas and Raymond Berry. and Alan Amici, know. wasn't he on that that team? He was on the Alan Amici 59 championship team. Now, was he also a kicker? He may have kicked. I can't tell you for sure. Well, that's very, okay. So the Marchettis at the Como Inn in Chicago have hired me. And this is 20 years later. This is like, uh, I'm saying 1980. It's a couple of years before I meet you. So we're catering. And to just bring everything full circle, we're catering a big wedding in a beautiful home up in the North Shore of Chicago, Lakeview, uh, might have been, not not Deerfield, but it was Winnetka, Wilmette, that area. And how huge, right on Lake Michigan. And I'm in my, you know, I'm a college graduate with all these uh, Hispanic young men um, who are dressed wearing classic catering uniforms, white shirt, black vest, black pants, black shoes. And the whole thing. right. So you got the scene and it's very, very well to do. It's it's upper, upper class Chicago. 
uh, wedding, catered. Stefan Marchetti has prepared, you know, this incredible meal. They've decorated the house, the whole thing. I'm bored. Oh, no, man. I'm bored. Yeah, I'm, I'm bored. I'm, I'm out of my mind with boredom. I'm a college graduate. What am I doing here? I go upstairs by myself, open the door. It's a giant ballroom with a grand piano in the middle of it. So wow. I got a tray of drinks or, or hors d'oeuvres. I think I had hors d'oeuvres. Set them down on the piano, which you would never do. You can't, you can't put anything on a piano. Drinks, hors d'oeuvres, anything. But I said, nobody's right. This piano is worth more than the first four cars you owned, probably. Ex well, yeah, it's probably worth, uh, exactly. So I sit down at the piano. It's pristine. So what do you do? I played You Can't Always Get What You Want by the, by the Rolling Stones. And a couple of people stop in, they're drunk, and they start singing along. Within a half an hour, I'm back at Sigma Chi fraternity at the University of Illinois. You know, I'm doing uh, Warren Zevon, Werewolves of London. You know, <laughs> and the place is packed. It's jammed now, and I'm just jamming. I'm having the best time. Stephane Your hair. Yeah. And Stefan Marchetti comes over and says, you got to get back to, you got to get back to work now, you know, uh, piano boy. So, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, I know, I'm, I know my days are numbered. So I pick up my tray and Arnie Morton, I didn't know who he was at the time. He comes yeah. over to me, this big guy. And he says, listen, here's my card. This was a Saturday night. He said, call me Monday morning. I've got a gig for you. So on Monday morning, I give him a call and he says, I have a, a plexiglass see-through piano in my oh. restaurant. And yeah. I want to hire you to come in and play. And it was a couple hundred bucks a week in tips. So I go in on a Tuesday night, an empty uh, bar you know, area before you go have a meal and I would play the piano. So I played there for probably four or five months. And I ended up taking another job at the Tip Top Tap. And to Arnie Morton's credit, when I went up to tell him that I was leaving, I went into his office and he knew I was coming to quit. And he, uh, he said to me, look, he said to me to this effect, son, you don't want to be a saloon piano player. Stop doing this. And he shakes my hand with a $100 bill. And off I go to the tip top tap. And I, I was a piano bar player for maybe another nine months and that was the end. But to get back to the story here, while I was at Arnie's, there was a man that would stop in every once in a while, an African-American man dressed to the nines, and he would have vodka and tonics and he would sit next to me at the piano and he would tell me stories about uh, chess records on the South side of Chicago. And some of my, oh. some of your Otis Spann, big blues piano player who I loved and this guy knew him. Okay. So he tells me this story dating back to 60 years ago from right now, as we are, we are making this recording in 2023 in 1953, Vivian, and oh, I can't remember the man's James Bracken, Vivian Carter and James Bracken are a couple and they yep. opened in 1953, a small record company named for the first initials of their names, VJ Records. In it's great. Where are Dave? They were in Gary, Indiana. They were Whoa. in Gary, Indiana making a making records, the studio, the office, the press, everything was right there in Gary, Indiana. And this guy and his Vivian. If they can see Chicago from where they're doing their records. But they, Gary, 
they didn't bother to go into the big city where there was already the some of the greatest early blues and rock and roll recordings were made. Howling, Alan Wolf, Big Mama Thornton, all the big names. But no, they locate in Gary, Indiana. And, and they stayed there. And you're right. And one of their big, biggest acts was a Chicago Southside blues guy named John Lee Hooker. And oh, they yeah. released on their little label, VJ Records, a blues song called Boom Boom, which is a huge blues record by John Lee Hooker. But they also released, and I just found this out recently, Gene Chandler's Duke of Earl. When oh, the, that song, I hear that song and it takes me right back to my brother and David Etris getting dressed, ready to go to their sixth grade record hop. <laughs> puts on Duverl to get psyched, to get, you know, to get into his Duke mood so he could go hit on some, you know, cute sixth graders and getting his shoes on that tied on the side. That And they oh. were like... They were what you would call rat stabbers because you could kick a rat and put that tip of that shoe right through them. And, uh, oh, yeah. And his green plaid jacket oh. and thick black tie. He was the Duke of Earl in my eyes. Go ahead. Duke, 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 Duke of Duke, Earl. Duke, 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 Duke of Earl. So, so they were having success is my point. You know, and obviously. Oh, big your, success. Your brother knew all the way out of New Jersey. So that's a big hit. And they had others too. And they also, this is so wild, Dave, they also somehow released a lot of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons first albums. Oh, wow. So they're tied in. Jersey Boys found Gary, Indiana somehow. So, and they would meet people, you know, from Jersey. And uh, you know, I don't know all the, and this guy would just tell me these stories. And yes. I, I have since, to get ready for today's podcast, I did a little research, so I kind of knew I didn't want to just spiel stuff out. So here's the deal: the Beatles, dated in letters and such, right? So the Beatles are going to record, um, are going to release their first album. I think Meet the Beatles or whatever it is, or they were going to call it Meet the Beatles, and they, yeah. they have a U.S. label, Capitol Records, but Capitol is is, free, and I just found this out recently too. And the guy, this guy that used to talk to me to come in and talk to me. He would tell yep. me about it. In fact, in 1963, when the Beatles' first album, when the first release came out, it came out on VJ Records, The Beatles, spelled B-E-A-T-T-L-E-S. So, Whoa. Oh, yeah. If you have one of those, you, you, you can buy one. Yeah, yeah, so, um, they, yeah. So, and a lot of the records that the Beatles were releasing in the early 60s Capitol Records, the big Capitol Records out of L.A., you know, with the big tower, it, you, you, might, you might recognize, you would recognize it if you saw their iconic tower in L.A. They were worried about some of the lyrics. Record, right? It's the, it's the stacked record building. You got it. That's what it is. Building. So they are queasy about releasing, and this guy's telling me this stuff, but while I'm playing, you know, and he and would what say. Was connection? What was his connection to VJ Records? He's from Gary, Indiana. Okay. Worked in a steel mill in Gary, Indiana, and he had worked his way up. And now he told me, his name was Dexter. He told me that he was running the steel mill. This was 1979, 1980. This was when the steel mills at Gary, Indiana, just about to go under. And yeah. he's driving up 
from, so who knows what the truth is, which is why I did some research for this story because I did, I had to figure out what, what is true and what's not. But he was sitting there telling me all this stuff that, about this, and he was right. VJ Records did release John Lee Hooker's albums. They did release Duke of Earl, and they did get first dibs on the Beatles record, which they mis, misspelled. And why did oh. they, why did they get it instead of Capital? Because Capital was worried about the lyrics in 1963. Yeah. Um, a good example is the song Misery by the Beatles, which is kind of a sarcastic, you know, they're in misery, but there's lots of la, 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 you know, it's British uh, subtle humor kind of. The yeah. US capital people, the way this isn't good. Um, please please me. They oh, thought yeah. a Whoa. little, yeah, very much so. So I don't have to go more into that. And this guy's telling me this. He's sitting there next to me and I'm playing, he would say, and he would say to me, um, play a little uh, Johnny Johnson, the piano player for Chuck Berry. And I would try to play like Maybelline. And he would say, he would say things they like, oh, that, that, you ain't got that right. That, that ain't right. And I would say to him, you know, well, then show me. Oh, I didn't play it. I just know I could hear. And would you yeah. play it right? You know, oh, thanks. You know, and he would critique <laughs> me sitting next to me. And he would say nasty things too, like, you awful big boy for piano player. I can't, there's no room for me on this bench. Well, I don't think the piano is made for two people. Well, no, especially if somebody big as you, you know, he was, he was never, <laughs> and he, you know, drinking and, um, but I will give him this much credit. He was right about, uh, VJ was named for v yeah. Vivian and, uh, you know, for the owners. They really were from Gary, Indiana. They really did release some albums and they have first dibs big on, and so they're, they're gonna, they, they have first dibs on the Beatles records. Here's the problem with VJ Records, and I found more of this out doing research for our podcast. They were always a little bit in the hole financially, oh. which you can understand. Sure. They're way off the beaten track. You know, you got to produce the albums and get the records out, and it's hard to keep the distribution up if you don't have the cash. You know, it, it, they didn't, cash flow was not there. So when they were just releasing small label blues records in the Midwest, they're okay. But now they're doing Frankie Val the Four Seasons. They get this song by this guy, Ifield from England, who has a big Johnny Mercer hit, but they can't keep up with the production and keep up with the records. So they're in the hole. And Capital. Yeah, that's one of the big production problems is you outsell, you outdistribute your capacity. And they, they never were able to catch up and they didn't have the business acumen. Who from Gary, Indiana? You know, they yeah. needed an accountant. They needed like my uncle who set right. me up with this whole the whole gig in the first place. You need Gene Baroni to come in and say, you know, that you're not gonna make any money this way. Uh, hang yeah. on. You know, they needed that guy to come in. Yeah. But they, they're in Gary, Indiana. So they get, they have the Beatles record and they put the Beatles record out. And it's of course a humongous hit. And Capitol Records is, wait a minute, that's on our label. I'm forgetting one story. Now, another story that he told me, I don't know if this is true and I haven't been able to verify this, but the yeah. guy told me this, Dexter told me this. They're not selling records, but they've got misery. They've got Please Please Me, Love Me Do, Misery, a few of the Meet the Beatles first 45s. Yeah. A secretary opens the TV guide at the office and sees that the Beatles are going to be at the Ed Sullivan show. This is 1963. Calls. Yeah. So he calls you know, Vivian and James, VJ. You know, hey, don't we have a don't we have a band here called the Beatles? Don't we have some of their records? You know, I think we do, because they're going to be on Ed Sullivan on Sunday night. You know, oh. Ed Sullivan. 
Yeah. So, the, I, I mean, they have an opportunity here. But Capitol Records, and here's here's the whole the, the story, is, is just so miserable at the end because you're kind of rooting for this little record company yeah. out of Gary, Indiana. Steel mills are falling apart. The Jacksons haven't even been born yet in Gary, Indiana. So they're the thing. They've got the Beatles. But now this record comes out. The Beatles go on Ed Sullivan. The record is selling like crazy. Capital has already paid. You know, they, they have unending cash. So they've yeah, paid yeah. for rights, production rights, uh, the, uh, the copyrights, all that. They've paid for that. All VJ Records had to do, I verified this as well, and this is so embarrassing. They had to pay an $859 fee right around the beginning of 1963. If yeah. they had paid that $859, they would have had access to the entire Beatles catalog. But instead, because they didn't, Capital sued them. Capital got all the rights. And by, by 1973, VJ Records is out of business. Is that, and so, but 859 days, I would, now I don't know, but that was probably, I'm figuring, that's probably five grand, right? Yeah. It's probably yeah. five grand. Money, but a whisker thin separation from eternal just banks and banks of gold, gold trucks just backing up to your driveway, putting a load in and getting out of the way for the next gold truck to dump off the money. That's how far away they were from the the God smack of all paydays. And, you know, what's wild, Dave? So when I got this gig, you know, I probably had, honest to God, I probably had memorized 12 songs and they were all like 1970s hits, like, you know, Neil Young. And But now I'm playing at this Arnie Morton's thing. And I've always been kind of a blues guy, but, you know, really more pop radio for Chicagoans, WLS AM 890 would play top 40 and WCFL would play top 40. And so that's what I would play. But the, the clientele, at Arnie Morton's was much older. They wanted Frank Sinatra. Uh, you know, if if they they would Frankie Valli Four Seasons might be palatable. Barry Manilow is a big hit. He might be palatable at the time, but they wanted Frank Sinatra, uh, Vic Damone, you know, stuff like that. And I'm trying to do, I don't know, like I said, Warren Zevon, Rolling Stones, throwing a couple of Beatles tunes. And this guy would come over, sit down next to me at the piano and tell me these wild stories. And then I was telling you the other day, and then you said, oh, we got it. This is a good story for the podcast. So that was, and that was kind of my introduction to show business on a professional level, because I'd, I'd done a couple of gigs here and there, but this yeah. is, I was getting paid. Um, this guy seemed to know what he was talking about. I had a tip jar and my tip jar, what I had done was I had um, put a sign on it that said, if you're dyslexic, don't in the jar. And I've written the word tips, which of course for a dyslexic looks like spit. And I, <laughs> and I, I would make, and people would come by and they would put money in, in the, the jar. And this guy would sit next to me and I wouldn't know these songs, but he would know them. He didn't know how yeah. to play, but he would know like Mood Indigo. I don't know it. Oh, oh yeah. man. And then he would go into his whole thing. You don't know Mood Indigo? Come on now. <laughs> then he would look around the bar. How many of y'all know Mood Indigo? And they were, but yeah, you know, he's going to play Mood Indigo. Hey, you can't play it. He's no good. <laughs> oh, crap. That was my introduction to show this. So uh, wherever Arnie Martin is, if he's still with us, thank you, Arnie. 
and Dexter, thank you. That guy came in, Dave. He was dressed, I, you know, he looked like he had made some serious cash. And he, was like, he also talked like somebody who was talking out the side of their mouth half the time. So I was very skeptical about this story until I did some. You just didn't know. Yeah, my, I'll tell you, I've got an introduction into show business that is a, that is a killer. And it's one of the near misses as well. We, uh, when, when I was working in advertising, I, uh, uh, my art director and I helped create and develop the character Chester Cheetah for Cheetah. Yes. yes, iconic. Now this dude, now in the Advertising Hall of Fame for brand characters, this dude came on and we, we sort of, we based him on a uh, sort of the, um, oh God, I can't think of the cartoons, Warner Brothers cartoons. We wanted that kind of a character, lots of fun crazy activity he would geek out when he saw cheetos and his head would turn into like a steam engine and you know blowing pistons and you know we just wanted to be outrageous and fun and it was it was marketed to preteens and teenagers and man did it take off it in advertising they have a thing called a q score which is a combination oh, yeah. of popularity and likability and that's where they sort of, you know, that's how they choose like, oh, we're going to have George Clooney be the spokesperson for this coffee because he's got off the chart Q scores. If you've got high Q scores, chances are you'll be able to command a lot of money. Well, even cartoon characters have Q scores. Oh, yeah. Chester Cheetah's Q score in the early 90s when, you know, we created him in 88 by the early 90s, his Q score was higher than Michael Jordan's oh, with, that, with, with that demographic. Michael Jordan was winning championships by the bundle by then. His Q score was higher than Mickey Mouse for oh that. Gosh. You're out doing Disney. You're out doing Disney. Oh. So he, is, he is QR score royalty. <laughs> And so it didn't come as a surprise that Frito-Lay approached us. We're ad guys working for Frito-Lay, creating this character, Chester Cheetah for Cheetos. They say, hey, can you create a TV show based on this character? Oh. Or a candidate. He's perfect, Chester Cheeto. And the thing yeah. I remember, the thing I remember the most, without having a picture in front of me right now, the sunglasses. The oh, sun yeah. Oh, my gosh. That made the sunglasses and leaning on a caddy. He was leaning, always leaning, always leaning. Caddy. I mean, he was always kind of, you know, kind of. A, I mean, he kind of oozed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh that's yeah. no wonder he has to be a TV show. And if you look closely at him leaning on that caddy, he was on the corner of Hip Street and Cool Avenue. Oh, of course he was. That was the cross street sign, baby. And so, yeah, this guy was cool. He was he was based on beatnik hip. And that was because of my sort of, you know, love for Kerouac, uh, Jack Kerouac. Right. And, uh, um, you, know, you know, Tom Waits. And, you know, we wanted to go for that kind of a vibe. And, uh, and then you got it. And Brad Morgan, the art director, had drawn this hound dog in high school that uh, everybody loved. And so when he thought of Chester, when we were, you know, thinking of Chester Cheetah for Cheetos, he's like, he didn't even know what a cheetah looked like. He just liked the sound of it. So he had to go home and look up 
which he didn't even tell me this until later. He says, oh, I had to go home and look up what a cheetah was. Oh, what wow. A- and to his surprise, it had a big snout, just like the hound dog he used to draw. And so he was totally based on a character Brad had drawn in high school, but he put on some, you know, a little more fur and some dots. And then he put them in high top white sneakers. Oh, so good. And sunglasses. And that's what gave him that, you know, that panache, that cachet. Oh, that perfect. That the little kids ate up. And oh, the yeah. Te- dud to the max and then we would try to come up with words like uh, that we had heard kids use like radical where they had come up with you know little sayings like that we tried to you know incorporate that into our beatnik hip rhymes so it just took off Frito-Lay approaches us can you do a tv show can we do a tv show we came up with all kinds of characters to surround them with and and we just had a blast with it. And so um, we, uh, what we do is we start rehearsing a pitch to the networks. Frito-Lay hired a, uh, a media guru to their credit and said, he came in and told us, you're going to go around and you're going to pitch, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS. And what, year is this, Dave? what year is this? Uh, good question. I'm guessing this is around 90. Oh, you know what? It was around 90, uh, one and two, just when my son was born. Wow. So it was right around there. And oh, and, and the, and the, um, yeah. So that was just, I guess Michael Jordan had won his first championship. And, uh, hey. but he was already a hot advertising commodity and we just out cued the son of a bitch. He couldn't beat us one-on-one. So I don't know why you want to be like Mike when you can be like Chester. So we just had a, you know, we had this hot property. We were feeling good. We were told we were going to pitch these four networks, but Fox was the one we really wanted because at this time, Peggy Charon was raising a big stink about kids uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and here we had a commercial property, a guy who sold Cheetos and we were going to make a whole show out of them. Well, that just set her, you know, (laughs) chicken and you know, it's red blooded capitalism, but she didn't want any part of that. She, you know, she was going to protect the kids from us money grubbers. So, so Fox was our best chance to get anything across, but we were going to go ahead and pitch all the networks. But so, Fox, another thing about Fox was they were pretty new at the time. Yeah, Fox, yeah, they, they were just, brand new and ready, and th- like they were ready to take chances on their Saturday morning right. line. This was before Nickelodeon, which really right. would have been a perfect fit for them, but they hadn't come out yet. So, um, so we're getting ready for the pitch. And our media guru tells us, you got to go in there. You've got literally six minutes to get. They're going to be looking at 40 to 50 ideas every day for the next week. So you're the little six minute slot they're going to see. So you got to make an impression. So Brad and I put our heads together. We go in a room and start rehearsing. 
a three-minute rap that tells everything you need to know about Chester Cheetah. And then we would go from that rap once we wowed him to our TV idea, all his friends and, and what the whole setting for the show would be and how he would roam the country and do cool shit. And so we uh, then Brad gets this idea. We get white shirts, black jeans, thin black leather tie, sunglasses like Chester. We get dark Ray-Bans. And uh, and then he takes some bright orange high top converse and and takes a magic marker and puts uh, black cheetah dots on them ah. and and down the back spine he, on each one he writes Chester on the other one cheetah <laughs> and so we get dressed up and start rehearsing in this outfit because we know we got to go in there and wow these execs so we have to be ready we have oh, to yeah. dress apart we have to rehearse till the cows come home and the whole you know that whole first three minutes is a you know is an ongoing rap and rhyme beatnik rhyme thing and you know i would trade off with brad and he would trade off with me and it had to be totally orchestrated and right on well we are pumped everybody at the agency is pumped they're talking merchandising money they're talking this it's one of the few times that an ad agency was so excited they talked to Frito-Lay and decided they were going to have a, uh, they were going to earn money off a character we had created for a client unheard of in advertising. Oh, yeah. Crazy. So this is a big motherfucking deal. So we go into LA and our media guru comes with us and he's been happy with what he's seen so far. And, but then we have to go into his hotel room and rehearse and, and do the whole thing for him, do the whole presentation for him. Yeah. And this is right before dinner. So right before we're going to have a big dinner and, you know, get ready for the next day when we're going to do in two days, we're going to pitch two networks on one day and two networks on the next day. So um, we go into this guy's room. We have this thing polished and rehearsed. Boom. We start. And all of a sudden, I have a brain freeze about two minutes in and can't remember. And I'm just like, what? Huh? I was just like, I think I was just over exerted with a, what do you call it? Adrenaline. And yeah. I shut down. I just shut the down. So I didn't even go to dinner. Everybody looked at me like, what the hell's wrong with you? And I, and I felt the same way. What the hell? I have a great memory. How the hell did I miss all this? And so I just had a little stage fright right there. So I didn't even go to dinner. I ordered room service and I just went over this thing and over this thing and over this thing. And Brad and I agreed we'd meet when he got back from dinner and we would go to his room and we would nail this thing. And I did. I I was so ready by that point. I did not screw up. So I felt a little hesitant going to the networks. Yeah, but, I would. But also, I felt like I had just put in a whole lot of extra effort, and that was going to pay off. You know, practice makes perfect. So um, that morning, as we're walking into the uh, into the networks, the first network. We're talking, we're talking, we're talking, and the media guru, we're walking along the sidewalk, and they've got these little orange or yellow posts right along the thing, and I don't even know what they were for. But as we're talking, all of a sudden, he disappears from my sight, 
And you know, we were all walking up, you know, across the sidewalk, you know, like a, and all of a sudden he disappears. We look down and he's on the ground grabbing his crotch. He had walked right into one of the arms. <laughs> and I got to oh. take that took the edge off everything. We just were cracking up, and I just that that just sort of that. I don't know. That was like very free. It was like if that guy could do that, I can't. There's no way I can embarrass myself any more than that. So we go into the networks and absolutely kill it. the 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 two Frito Lay reps and this media guru were so pumped at what after our first meeting, they could and we could see it in the eyes. We could see that we were just impressing the hell out of this this crew from you know I can't remember maybe it was NBC. Afterwards, it's like pats on the back. We're, you know, but then we still had to do like in an hour, we had to go over to Fox and redo the whole thing. But we, we were so high after that initial meeting, we went into Fox, killed it again. The next day we kill it at two other networks and we're just feeling like we're going and we're, we're having a big, big lunch and pouring champagne for lunch and talking about how great it went. And we're waiting to hear back. And maybe a week later, we hear that NBC was out because they were now killing all their Saturday morning TV stuff. They were going to go to uh, news. They were going to go to news, and we felt bad. We thought that was one of our best meetings. And uh, but then we hear from Fox that we love it. We're, we we want to do it. And we're like that's cool. And then I think CBS was in, and so there was a little bit of a war going on between Fox and CBS, which was great. And so they were sweetening the pot and sweetening the pot. Finally, Fox comes back and says, we're going to make this our flagship Saturday morning. I still have a paper clip from the news, one of the variety magazines that said that Chester Cheetah was going to be the Saturday morning flagship thing. We even got it so that Chester Cheetah would be the intro and outro, the entire for all the Saturday morning programming. Uh, you know, he would do a little spiel, uh, you know, like, don't surrender to some cheesy pretender, watch so-and-so. And so yeah. it was all, you know, it, it was all lined up. They got us, they said, who do you want to produce this TV show? We were like, let's go with Nirvana. They did uh, the uh, Beetlejuice cartoon, which wow. at the time was super hip and, you know, way out there. So they fly us to Toronto. We meet with the production company. They, we show them like six proposed TV scripts. They're loving it. They help us create an intro for the program. We're, we're rolling, we're rolling. It's this intro. We're like, this is Flintstone quality intro. We are like pumped. This is going to be so cool. So, and we developed all these other characters, you know, that we had already, we had developed them, but then the pros at these, you know, at this media place get their hands on it and they polish them to a fine luster. And uh, so we're, we're totally psyched. We fly out to Fox like once a month and Brad and I called it mogling. We would, they would, we would rent a on Fox. We'd stay in a hotel on Fox. We'd eat out at restaurants on Fox. And we would just meet with different executives and talk about the show. And, you know, I'm looking over at the other table and there's people who used to be on Saturday Night Live. And, you know, there's and then we ended up one time in we're driving out of the Fox parking lot. We run into one of their stars, Gary Shandling. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
well, we're in our red Mustang convertible. He's in his convertible, which is, a, you know, even nicer. It's some kind of like Lamborghini type thing. And he's got a dog on his lap. And we're, t- hey, great dog. Oh, yeah, I just bought it in Hawaii. We, we talked for about seven minutes about his dog and about his show and how much we admire it. And that, yeah, we're going to have a show on Fox, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, that's so cool. Yeah, blah, blah. You'll love these people, blah, blah. And so we're just like, this is so outstanding. Well, then all of a sudden, it just one month becomes another month, becomes another month, and nothing's quite getting done because the Frito-Lay lawyers, and this is something that the media guru, I remember being at the lunch when we were celebrating, and the media guru turned to the guy who initiated the whole project and said, whatever you do, you got to hire entertainment lawyers when you're dealing with these media. Oh, yeah. No doubt about that. You can't get your corporate lawyers to, it's just going to be oil and water because corporate lawyers don't think like media lawyers. They're not entertainment savvy. So um, Brad and I are like, and then the media guy tells us, hey, you and Brad, because he really, he took a liking to us and he goes, guys, you got to get your own lawyers. You got to get people to look after your interests. And uh, so so we went to this place. He, he gave us a, a name in Chicago and they called themselves. We go to the boardroom and we meet with these guys, a whole lineup of these entertainment lawyers. And they called themselves the Seven Savage Jews. <laughs> that's show right there. That they, is a show attorney name right there. Seven it, Savage Jews. That you knew they were entertainment lawyers, man. The seven savage Jews. And I like that because I'm a 16th Jewish myself. So I'm like, oh, well, they got it, something on the ball. So uh, I like what I'm hearing. I'm buying into that. And they were telling us all this stuff. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're making sure we're protected. We were told by the media guru, with the money you're going to make from merchandising and all this other stuff, got to protect yourself. Or you're going to, you know, we'll be like VJ Records. If you're cheap, you're going to miss out on the big payday. Right. Like, That's I, a point. He's got a point. He's got a point. So we so we get in there. But then what is what is the guy from Frito-Lay do? Oh, you know, after in the meeting, he's like, oh, yeah, I won't do that. I won't do that. But what he does, he hires the Frito-Lay lawyers. They're good. They're good guys. I know them. They're they're smart. They'll take care of us. And we're like, oh, my God, so-and-so said you don't want to do this. And he said, no, we'll be fine. We're like, okay, well, we know we're in trouble when the lawyers meet with us and say, now, Chester can never do hard drugs on this show. Yeah, no kidding. He's not going to do any hard drugs. Chester can't curse. Chester can't do this. Chester can't do that. Chester must always do this. And we're like, oh, my God. Yes, fine. Okay. And but then they started making demands that we could tell we're going to compromise this character a bit. And. Fox was whispering in our ear, these lawyers are driving us crazy. They want want a cut of the pie that is three, four times what we give our best, you know, cuts to. They're just, they're insatiable. They're ridiculous. They don't know what they're talking about. This isn't going to work. And we're like, no, 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 no. Work with them, work with them. And, you know, because it was like a give and take because they loved our ideas. They loved our show, but they were really starting to hate these Fox corporate lawyers, no, Frito-Lay corporate lawyers. Well, there got to be almost a year after our presentation. Oh, my gosh. 
missed one season already. We missed the initial season we were supposed to go on. We had all these scripts ready to go, ready to be animated, but we pulled the trigger. We now have like 10 whole shows ready to go, but they haven't pulled the trigger. It's always this close. We're always that close. We're always just a bit. And then I'll never forget the afternoon I got a call. Pick it up in the kitchen of our first condo my wife and I had, you know, thinking that I'm going to leave all this behind for the big, big, big money like a mogul. Because we're going to be executive producers on this show, Brad and I. You are. We're going to get merchandise, cut of the merchandise. There's going to be no end to the flow. Hi, this is, and I can't remember her name, who was just the sweetest gal from Fox and was the one that wrote all our, you know, got us all the freebies and, you know, let us live like moguls. Debbie, I think her name was. I have some bad news for you. Uh, we've just we've reached an impasse with the Fox lawyers as much as we love your property and we just love you and Brad. We can't work with the Frito-Lay lawyers. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Can't we do? No, no. We've, the decision's been made. We've cut the cord. We can't deal with them. We, if it's this bad, just trying to get the show on the air, the worst nightmare is to continue working with these assholes. I'm like, <laughs> Oh my God! So oh, welcome to TV. The world of TV is just it. It is it, just that sums it up right there. You know, especially if there's uh, there's so many. Here's another great example. Just kind of what you went through. The there was a comedian named Kevin Meany years ago. A very funny guy. Yeah. He, he was very funny. He was um uh he had a TV show, Uncle Buck, which was actually the, a movie with John Candy, yeah. which was pretty yeah. popular. And Kevin Meany did the TV show and was Uncle Buck. Kind of right. miscast, but he did a good job. And his show had higher ratings than Seinfeld for the first year. I'm not making that up. That's the truth. But Seinfeld was owned by NBC, and which is a smart move by NBC. But it kind of plays into what you're talking about, the NBC lawyers. Well, you know what? The Kevin Meany, the Uncle Buck show, yeah, it's got higher ratings. But it costs us this so much. We can make so much more money. With this is all in-house. We're doing this in our own studio. We don't have to pay for this. Yeah. It's a lot cheaper. But, and so even though Kevin's show had higher ratings, and I'm not saying that it was better than Seinfeld. I mean, Seinfeld's a classic. And yeah. I, in my opinion, got better as the years yeah. went by. But Kevin, that's just a great example, just like you. Which, you know, He was actually on the air, had a show, 13 episodes, and then <laughs> one day. Sorry, we're done. What? Yeah. Oh, and then when Fox was through with this, they sent us a bill for all the car rentals, the hotel. The oh. rent- they sent us a bill for everything. Oh, Dave. It's just, it's so expensive. Nobody knows, you know, the, the expense that goes into a, a show. Although, and that kind of plays in because there's a writer's strike going on right now. And yeah. this, it, and I, I'll put it this way. Because if you define, I mean, just for our show, just for our podcast, the story is this. What is a joke? A joke is a setup, and most people would tell you, followed by a punchline. But as our podcast has proven today, what is a joke? It's a setup followed by a paycheck. And that paycheck can be split up. There's so many people, attorneys, (laughs) agents, bookers, you know, there's all kinds of... uh, 
there's a literary agent, merchandising agent, acting agent, you oh. know, music. I mean, there's just, it's an endless. So and it, it's, it really is a money. It really is. It's a joke is basically set up and, and paycheck. And you almost, and it's a, it's a sad way to look at it. But another way I always look at it too is, and just talking about just in an overall viewpoint of from being where we are now, you and I standing, looking back on 30 years ago, 20 years ago, all this stuff. As you look back, the, the, when you, when you are writing stuff, when you're, the, the whole creative process is really now, how can I monetize that? And I will give credit to people on the internet now and podcast people and people I mean, with their YouTube channels, they figured out how to monetize whatever it is because there's a setup and it's not so much the punchline, it's, it really comes down to the paycheck. It, yeah. it, it really, in the end, it really does. And of course, you learned that lesson in just an overwhelmingly mean way. That's just <laughs> brutal to be that close and have that, rip, that rug ripped out from underneath you. Unreal. But we're going to have to part until next time because the clock has ticked. Great talking with you. Always. Thanks, Dave. Take care, my friend. Happy, happy uh, touring. Where are yeah. you off next? Uh, oh, well, that's to talk about that. I'm headed to St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands in about five days. Where else would you want to be in the summertime? <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> Put me in Vegas in August. That's a dream gig. Well, we've come to another storybook ending. Thanks for stopping by the Stories Unlimited podcast, and that's Stories UNLTD. We'd appreciate you following us on Spotify, as well as on Apple Podcasts, and you can email us at storiesunltd at gmail.com.